Welcome to Buddha's Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Scott Killaby. Uh, Scott is a non-dual author teacher from southern Indiana. You're probably the only non-dual author teacher in southern Indiana. <laughs> and uh, he is the author of Love's Quiet Revolution, The End of the Spiritual Search, and Reflections of the One Life, Daily Pointers to Enlightenment. He is also the creator of a revolutionary addiction recovery method called Natural Rest. I want to know about that. His book, Natural Rest, Finding Recovery Through Presence, is scheduled for release in early 2011. Um, I'll be linking to Scott's website uh, on batgap.com, so you'll be able to go there and, and see more details. Um, and in addition to the details of his meetings and retreats, there are many essays, quotations, and videos on his website, which you can view. Um, he also holds frequent meetings all over the world in person and online via Skype and teleconferencing. Um, there's a little quote from Scott here uh, that um, his publicist sent me. I think I'll just read that. He says, We live our lives asleep. Our minds are programmed for self-centeredness. This programming causes us to spend our lives seeking the future for a sense of contentment we can't seem to find. It causes conflict in our relationships. To say that we live in self-centeredness is not a moral judgment, it's a statement of fact. The good news is that awakening from this self-centered dream is possible in this lifetime. This awakening reveals a depth of freedom and contentment that no relationship, job, material item, self-improvement plan, or any other accomplishment or attainment in the material world can bring. This level of freedom frees us from our endless seeking towards, towards future. It frees us from conflicts so that our real nature as love shines through, affecting every area of our lives. In just a few short years, Scott Kilby has emerged as one of the clearest non-duality teachers on the planet, according to Michael Jeffries. Um, anyway, uh, let's talk to Scott now and stop reading about him. So, Scott, I had a, I had a feeling like um, a good way to start this interview uh, might be, if you agree, to have you just sort of give us in a nutshell what you've what you what you say I mean what you teach you know just synopsis kind of thing and then we'll unpack that and elaborate yeah I mean I actually have something on my site called non-duality in a nutshell oh okay I didn't so, even know that <laughs> yeah well it's funny that you brought that up yeah um, well the way that I talk about it is you know we come to this we live in life most of all, all of us with the belief that separation is real that when we look out into the world that it is what it how it presents itself that you're a you and I'm a me and, and this is a house and that's a road and all of these things exist by themselves as separate things and then at some point we stumble upon something that makes us look in a different way it could be suffering it could be just an interest in a truth or, or whatever that it is and, and, and the way that I talk about it is we start to realize that I use the word awareness a lot because I think it's easy for people to feel into their experience with it, is that you can actually experience this moment without any labels. Mm -hmm. And I, I find that when people start doing that and they start just sort of resting without emphasizing all of their thoughts, the one thing that they find is that at the core of their experience they're already there's already an undivided um, peace or an undivided awareness that hasn't yet divided the world into Rick and Scott and mom and dad and road and street <laughs> and the more that we sort of rest there 
and realize that it's always present. We almost like it's like we gain a confidence, but it's not an egoic confidence. It's not like a confidence that I I am recognizing it. It's a confidence that, again, at the core of our experience, there is no separation, and that has all the confidence in the world because the lack of confidence comes from the sense of being this separate me mm -hmm. that feels cut off from the world. So as we do that more and more, you know, I think the place where you can sort of leave it is. Okay, well, I've realized this. It's very peaceful. It's always with me. I think people do experience that. They experience that there's this undifferentiated awareness, or they could even say nothingness at the core of my being, and that's just one way of talking about it. And they sort of leave it there, almost like making thought itself into a kind of an enemy, or as if sort of thought is the problem, and no thought is the answer, you know. But I, to me, that it leaves a division there that doesn't have to be there. And so at some point you start to realize that yes, there is this undifferentiated awareness here, but that when thought appears and it says Rick, that that doesn't actually divide the universe either. That's just a thought. Like the thought doesn't actually have the power to do that. And that we're not really experiencing a separate thing out there called Rick. It's just through, by designating a thought, designating Rick, it looks like there's separation. And then, and 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 that's that's sort of the sum up of the nutshell. It mm -hmm. sound like more than a nutshell, but um, the coconut, the, co co the coconut, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, is that is that thought and emotion and everything is is included in our experience? That the liveness of being, uh, in an illusory sense, uh, Scott and Rick and Rhodes and all the conventional existence stuff is all still there with us and, and it, at the end doesn't destroy the sense of undifferentiated peace that we're experiencing. And I think that's what I would call, if I had to define enlightenment, I would say it's that. It's that mm -hmm. whatever that is, which is what, I, what Buddhists call the middle way. I love that, mm. that, that phrase, but you know, that's what I call it. So. Okay, good. Um, so you mentioned that a, uh, a trauma or something might precipitate this realization. Is that what happened to you? I mean, I was uh, I was addicted to drugs for about uh -huh. 20 years. You what know, kind? I don't like oh, just about anything I could get my hands on, uh -huh. including uh, heroin. Everything but heroin, actually. Oh, okay. Because uh -huh. um, I, I didn't like needles, but right. I probably would have gone there. But um, without going into a huge deal about it, yeah. there was just a, there was just a long addiction process, and then uh -huh. at, at a certain point, the addiction turned towards self improvement, mm -hmm. and then. And towards enlightenment, and the crisis, if you want to say, was a crisis of identity. It was like looking for myself everywhere, looking for a sense of, of where's my pe what's what's going on, who am I, and mm -hmm. why can't I be okay? Mm. That was the crisis. It wasn't like an individual thing where, like, I hit a, I mean, I did hit a bottom in drugs, but right. that, but it was more like a, just a sort of a story that kept going on, but it just felt like something was missing the whole time. You know, mm -hmm. it was that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I I did drugs only for about a year, but I was fairly young, like you know, 17, 18 years old, and uh, ostensibly I thought I was doing them because it was opening up some sort of spiritual dimension for me. You know, uh, I mean, I'd be sitting there reading Timothy Leary's translation of Tibetan Book of the Dead, and trying to figure out what bardo I was in. You know, and taking a bit of acid and find out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, but then finally, uh, one night I was 
taking acid for the umpteenth time, and I was sitting there, and I picked up a Zen book, or Zen flesh, Zen bones, and, it, and I thought to myself, you know, these guys are really serious, and I'm totally screwing around. And if I keep going on like this, I'm going to live a miserable life. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to stop taking drugs, and I'm going to learn to meditate and see where that takes me. And, and that's good. Yeah. yeah. You didn't have to go to the depths of the addiction. You kind of just sort of stopped it and said, okay, I'm going to get serious about this. Yeah. I mean, I definitely managed to do some damage in that year. And by the time it was over, I'd dropped out of high school and gotten kicked out of the house and, you know, was just floundering around, just a confused young kid. But fortunately, I didn't carry it, I, I didn't carry it on too long. I, I just realized that it, it wasn't going to... Do me any good in the long run. Yeah, yeah, that's good to know because I think that's good to say because I think that some some people have an idea that in order to be free you sort of have to go through this really really traumatic place. There's some of that talk around here that like such and such teacher went to this place of like total depression and and then at the bottom of the depths of the depression found awakening, but. But there are all sorts of other stories out there, you know. Yeah, I mean, it can happen that way. It can happen. I know people who have really led, led very smooth, joyful lives, and they're very much awake in the sense that you and I would use that word. Um, yeah. Didn't didn't have to go through all that stuff. So I, who who knows? You know, karma, yeah. whatever. It's <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. A good answer, actually. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I, I do have a sense that uh, the universe kind of gives us the experiences we need in order to take us to the next step, you know, and, and obviously it's different strokes for different folks. Yeah, because different experiences, right? Yeah. 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 We are, we're not all having the same experience on the level of appearances and form and everything. We're not having the same experience. So you would, you would imagine that since the experiences are so different, then the path and the, the how it happens would be just equally as diverse. Yeah. And if there's anything you can say about nature, it's diverse. You know, wh whatever is responsible or whomever is responsible for this universe loves diversity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, and everywhere in people, in things, in animals, in plants, and everything. It's just unbelievably diverse. Yeah, on that I level. Think, I think that's part of the beauty of it, that level of it, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so you kind of like hit rock bottom with your drug thing, and you know. What did, you, did 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 a sort of a realization or a, a turnaround happen spontaneously, or did you start like go to a teacher or start reading books feverishly, or you know what what was going on then? I think it was a switch from my seeking uh, in time. I, mm -hmm. I had always been seeking like something else. I was always moving towards something, like yeah. like you know, as a movement. And instead, I turned that in on the present moment, and I looked. And that energy, I directed it here, and I, I wanted to find out what's actually here now instead of what's going to be here later or what might come later, what's actually here now. And then I started looking into the fact that when the thought would arise, it gave the impression that something was happening here, uh -huh. um, that something was happening right here, that there was a me here, and that there was a me here that seemed to have a past and a me here that seemed to have a future. But all of those seemed to be thoughts that were happening right here. Mm -hmm. And I began to just sort of watch those. I would say, oh, there's a thought about my ten, being 10 years old. And there's a thought about me being on drugs. Oh, no, there's a nice thought about how I got into recovery and got mm -hmm. clean. And then I would say, oh, here's the thought about how maybe I'll be enlightened one day or maybe I'll die someday mm -hmm. or maybe I'll suffer. And then, But what I started to see is they all had the same thing in common is that they, they would all go like this. They would arise. They would hang around a bit and then dissolve mm -hmm. and some would arise and hang around and sort of torture me you know <laughs> you know yeah. and so that they would hang around a little bit longer but 
what I found is that all of them, without exception, would dissolve. So then I started to find out what, you know, I started to look at what, what is it that makes this experience feel like it's, the, the, that there's separation here. And then I found again that the, primarily it's thought. You know, there's other things involved, like emotions and sensations. But I began to look at that, and I, I began to see that when when thought was arising, it was like it would. It was like it would focus my. It would focus the the wide openness of the present moment into like a contracted thing. Like mm. it would say Scott, and as if somehow that thought, like that there was something there called Scott that could actually separate itself from everything else, and be really, really, really important. You know. Mm-hmm. And, and that was true of everything that I looked at when I saw a bank or when I saw uh, anything. I noticed that every time I saw something, a thought was arising. And I wanted, and, and that's what gave me this sense of separation. As I rested more and more without having to emphasize all those thoughts, I just found out that like, on the, there's a level of our experience, just to use the word level, that has never been divided. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the, the, the prior to thought. And once I became more comfortable with that as being always here, like I say, then I just saw how just because a thought arises after that doesn't mean that, that it actually does create separation. Because, the, again, it's everything that nothing is independent of thought, nothing is independent of it. Like a, a bank arises because the thought bank arises, which is not independent from the consciousness that's seeing that. Mm-hmm. So, so it's consciousness. But thought bank, object bank, and I realized that's how everything is, and everything started to be experienced very intimately like that, like like it was all right here, you know. Well, a, a dog sees the bank too, but maybe he pees on it or something. He doesn't know of it as a bank. It's just like this, but he, he has the same perception, you know, yeah. um, without the thought. It right. doesn't give an interpretation to it. Probably thinks, might you know, I mean, in his own little dog mind, he might have a, you know, obviously can maybe distinguish between buildings, which people might come out of, and trees and cars, which can ch- you can chase and, and whatnot. But we, as human beings, we have much more complex minds, and we overlay many more interpretations and judgments and whatnot. I mean, we might think yeah. bank and think, oh, my God, I'm going to go into foreclosure or, or, <laughs> I'm, I'm, or is that bank going to fail? I'm going to lose all my money and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Da, da, da. That's it. That's yeah. it right there. Yeah. We, 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 could pre- we pretty much bet that the dog's not doing that. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is why we love them so much because they're so innocent, you know. Because yeah. yeah, <laughs> it's just sort of beauty, simple innocence in, in animals. Yeah. Um, so during this whole like twenty-year period of taking drugs and all, were you sort of at the same time dwelling on spiritual stuff, reading spiritual books? Was there sort of a seeking component in that that you were conscious of, or did that sort of come up more towards the end? I think in the early stages of my addiction, I was I got into Eastern spirituality for about two years, uh-huh. became, but I was but then I became so much more interested in drugs that yeah. I just kind of put that down, and then yeah. it wasn't until like you know many many years later that I. After I got off the drugs, then you, I was did, you did a twelve-step program at some point, right? I mean, that and that usually has a spiritual component to it. Yeah, I mean, twelve-step program was really helpful for me in terms yeah. of just getting clean and getting support from others, and then that allowed me to to look into my experience a little bit more without being clouded by all the things that go along with a drug addiction. Sure. Yeah. And so when you uh, when you kind of really started left the drugs behind and started um, undergoing this 
transformation that you were just describing. Uh, were you assisted by books and teachers of any kind, or were you really much, pretty much doing it on your own and just having these realizations and kind of reorienting the way you perceive the world on your own? Um, yeah, I mean, I picked up things like from J. Krishnamurti mm -hmm. and, and things like Eckhart Tolle and, um, you know, dabbled here and there, but I didn't know what Advaita, Advaita Vedanta was. I didn't know the different schools of Buddhism and all the traditions. I didn't realize the rich history there. Right. I was just interested in kind of discovering what my experience was like, so I used those teachings to kind of, as a guide, to kind of help me look into my experience more. Yeah, they were, they were definitely helpful. Yeah. Um, did you experience uh, at any point sort of radical shifts? You know, like you could say, okay, on the afternoon of November 13th, uh, you know, all of a sudden this thing happened, or was it more a gradual kind of uh, incremental transformation? It was both. The way that I've uh, expressed it, one way I've said it in my book that you, that you mentioned, I think Reflections of the One Life, there's, uh -huh. there's one of the meditations in there that sort of talks about it in terms of, um, well, it's kind of hard to exp express this, but what I've been saying is like you often hear people uh, speak in terms of a, like a gradual, like you say, mm -hmm. and then like a sudden place where it feels like everything is just is as it is, like a kind yeah. of a oneness experience. Uh -huh. And um, the way that I th talk is that both of those viewpoints are available to us when we're on, the, and this is what I was experiencing. I was definitely experiencing a gradual kind of awakening. Mm -hmm. And what it was is that I was still very much thinking of myself as being in a story. That was my identity, past, present, and future. And so naturally, I was just measuring it that way. I was like yeah. saying, I, w I was really experiencing kind of an experiential peace and, and a knowing. But what I was doing is I was, re I was interpreting it within the story. So I was measuring back and I was saying, wow, I feel so much more peaceful than mm -hmm. I did three months ago isn't this amazing so the little ego says yeah keep working on that you know mm -hmm. and you, if you keep working on that uh, then you'll you'll be to this other place down in the future because I didn't know any better that's how I processed everything mm -hmm. so that's what I think the gradual was for me you know there would be these little moments where it'd be just like ah, it's like what There's, there aren't any problems like that pe people are making all of this stuff up you know and then I would and then the mind would come back and say See now, now you've really seen something. Huh. You've re you've really seen something. You've seen something. What you've seen now is so much more than what you saw before. Mm -hmm. See, you're still measuring in time. And then there came a point where it was just like, oh, that whole story of coming to to presence is actually absurd on its face. You can't come here. What was happening was is that there was an interpretation, a story happening of a gradual awakening and then yeah boom it was like this this seeing of like all that is or those are just viewpoints coming and going within a timeless awareness that says oh you were 10 years old oh you were on drugs oh you know you thought you were enlightened oh now you think there is no such thing as enlightenment oh you know all that all that stuff yeah and then it just so that's the, it's, it was both for me you mm -hmm. know personally i have no problem with the idea of both and in, in other words you know there's a lot of talk in so-called neo-advisor circles about giving up the search and the whole notion of progress is absurd and so on and so forth. But I can only be true to my own experience and maybe my experience is immature or something and I'll see it differently at some point. But, I, you know, I experience uh, a continuous, very full and contented presence 
uh, regardless of circumstances. I can be falling off my bicycle and hitting my head, which happened one time, and, and it was interesting in the moment of that impact that I, the, the presence was like solid as a rock, and I thought, well, this is interesting. And uh, Or running through a busy airport on little sleep, trying to catch a connecting flight, and the, the presence is just as solid and, and predominant, predominant, if not more so, than the chaos. And yet, I feel like I'm evolving. I mean, and when I say I, I'm, I'm just using language because we have to use language. But I feel like there's a continuous growth, and uh, you know, and if you think of it in terms of the nervous system being that through which we experience anything, including this conversation or or presence or anything else, you know, then the nervous system is a very delicate instrument which is subject to refinement, and um, you know. As it becomes more refined, our experience matures and and and, and you know becomes enriched. And personally, I don't. And that doesn't mean that we necessarily are locked into a oh my God, I'll feel so good when I get there kind of thing. We can be completely content in the present, not giving a thought for future evolution and or future attainments or whatever. And yet, there's a, a, a continual unfoldment, a maturation, if you will, of of this. Uh, spiritual dimension, if we can use that word. I'm, I'm always cautious using words <laughs> for obvious reasons. But anyway, what do you say to that? I think it's great, and I think it's a really balanced view, actually, and I talk about it a lot, that that really, you know, there's there's two aspects of our experience, you know, and they're inseparable. You know, they say in, in, in uh, Buddhism, they say nirvana is none other than samsara. Mm-hmm. And they, are they, so they say that there are these two aspects of our sense of just pure, timeless presence and this sense of like unfolding and deepening and, and evolving. And both of those things are in our experience if we just look. Yeah. They're always there. I think maybe in the beginning it's just sort of we're so heavily, going back to that nutshell thing, we're so heavily in the story mm-hmm. unfoldment that all of our attention is there. Yeah. And so it's helpful to get that sort of non-dual space as the background which then sort of kind of loosens up the personal drama and traumas and seeking in that story, but it doesn't dissolve it away. I mean, why would you want to dissolve thought away totally or life or family or relationships or community or evolving and changing and growing and all those things? That's part of the other part of it. But what happens, I think, is that, like you kind of say, is that at a certain point it stops to me, for my my people, it, it stops being, you start wanting... It stops being so self-centered. Yeah. It stops, yeah. It stops being about like my attainment. Exactly. It starts being about well, okay, we're we're really, really in this. Whatever this is, we're in this together. And mm-hmm. and then you start. That's what Buddhists have always said: care and compassion for all beings, getting out of limited thought patterns that keep us in conflict. And um, and so there's ever deepening available. And when someone says, you know, hey, I'm enlightened. You know, I want to I want to talk to him about that. You know, because if you talk to people long enough, you find out that we all have limited kind of ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, e- even if we're only Buddhists or we're only Advaita Vedanta or whatever, those are still limited kind of structures. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's a sense of limitation. So it's fine to be that way. But I think there's an ever deepening process where you just start to realize that like. 
love has no end to it. I mean, like that, that, that these that these divisions that we're creating through thought that they're paper thin and they don't go away, but they really start to be kind of interpenetrating here. It's just kind of like it's all allowed in a way. You just sort of become deeper and deeper into this surrender, and it's hard to talk about. But I think you and I both know what we're what we're trying to say here. Yeah, and hopefully our listeners do too. And and that was well put. I mean, I went through years of a sort of annoying, yearning, you know, desperate, you know, got to get there kind of thing. And at, at some point, that just, I don't know, it, there wasn't a point. It, it just sort of tapered off and disappeared. And and now, you know, I'm still very motivated. I mean, I'm always listening to this kind of thing and reading things and talking about it. And I, I'm doing this show. So it's not like I've lost my sort of spiritual motivations, but it's it doesn't have that seeking quality that it used to have. I mean, I could, I could use the word seeking because, sure, you know, there's m much more to be discovered and, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in discovering it. But, it, but uh, you know, I could stay exactly the way I am now for the rest of my life and that would be okay too. I don't think that's going to happen. But, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's like there's, it's sort of paradoxical. But, you, you know, there can be contentment and uh, a sort of striving at the same time. Uh, and the strive, but the striving doesn't have, it's not, emptiness-based, you know, it's more fullness-based. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm glad you're sharing all that with me because it really helps the, this conversation go. And um, I was just going to say that a friend of mine was saying it the other day is that it's sort of the, the way that he was saying it's sort of the difference between seeking and just exploring or investigating or unfolding or evolving. They're, they're really two different things, you know. Like on the one side, seeking is really, like you say, it's really personal and it's built, it's almost there's anxiety in it. because yeah, it's, it's like, based on lack. Yeah. Yeah, that has its own experience, and then there's when we start to recognize that sort of non-dual, whatever that is, then that kind of starts to release itself, which is really some people say, well, that's really just the beginning in a way, and I know that people will say, well, God, don't tell me that because, you know, because I thought I was coming to the end here. Yeah. But in a certain way, it's like the the anxiety around the personal seeking kind of dies away, which really, but here we are still, at yeah. least as it is, here we are, mm -hmm. and. And, and what else do we have to do other than explore this experiment called life? I know, and it's such a wonderful adventure. I mean, yeah. I'm in no big hurry to procre proclaim myself finished. You know, yeah. I, I, if, if anything, if I'm going to err, I'd much rather err on the side of presuming I'm less enlightened than I am rather than more enlightened than I am. Totally, totally. <laughs> I think it's just a humility check. It's a good humility check. Yeah. You know, just to say that, just to say. I mean, if you, also if you question somebody who says, you know, I'm enlightened, if you question a little bit more, that that whole thing breaks down, you know, because uh, if you say, "Well, what do you mean I'm here?" Well, what is here? You're having thought. There's thoughts. There's a, there's there are feelings. There, there's an experience here, and there is a non-dual background. Mm -hmm. But but um, what is here? I mean, here is always constantly changing. You know, like from experience to experience. So what is it that you think that's that you've got here? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so it kind of breaks down when you when you really go in for it and find out what is that word really pointing to. Yeah. I was listening to a conversation a few days ago between you and Jeff Foster and some other people and uh, there's some guy named Keith, I'm not sure who, she, who he was, and uh, Jeff Foster was telling the story about 
um, how he and his mother were taking a walk, and she said, oh, isn't that a beautiful tree? And he went into this whole, you know, heart, heartless, dry rap about how there is no tree and it's all an illusion and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, somebody actually made a cartoon of that. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a cartoon on the web where these two, there are these two characters, and one of them says, look at the beautiful tree, and the other character goes into a whole neo-advaita shtick. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, Jeff said to, in that in that little thing there, um, he said, you know, I, I thought I was enlightened. And, and he was kind of looking back and thinking, you know, what a schmuck I was. I was, yeah, yeah. I was being so you know, heartless with my mother and so immature. And he said, you know, there's really, you know, the, sure, on, on some level there is no tree and there is no beauty and all that. But on, in, in just as real a way, uh, if just about as real a way, there is a tree and there is beauty. And, and, both co and, and I actually felt this wave of joy when I heard him say that. Uh, because I, I thought, oh boy, you know, I, I, it's so refreshing to hear somebody with a, a balanced perspective. And I, I, I thought, I hope Scott's that way too, because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I don't want to just have a conversation with somebody who says, you know, that nothing is real and that's all there is to it. Yes. Um, there's a bigger picture, you know, yes. and, and it's almost like you have to kind of acknowledge each level as having its own validity, yes. uh, even though one level may totally refute other levels. But nonetheless, you know, the whole package is life. Right. And, uh, and, you know, you have to kind of... Oh, yeah, I've made the point. I don't want to go on any further. I'll let you no. respond. No, that's great. I, I, think we're, I think we're both saying the same thing. It's just lately I've just been calling it the middle way because it's just, it's just, a, it's just an old traditional word that I think that it's nice to bring it back into modern non-dual talk and to mm -hmm. say you know, exactly what you're saying, exactly what Jeff's saying. It's really not that difficult to have a non-conceptual experience, you know, you, you can cultivate that, and actually, you can just and you can see that when you're not thinking, not only is there no self, there's no tree, there's no the, the, happiness is a concept. Everything is a concept down mm -hmm. to the very last thing. Yeah, and, and you can really, really see that, and then that can be great and freeing and wonderful because you've really seen that, you know, that what you took as a world that seems so real, it just isn't, you know? Mm -hmm. But then it's like, well, then if you've really seen that, what's the problem with yeah. all the stuff? There's yeah. no problem anymore. And so enjoy that completely. When the thought arises that says there's a tree, nothing stops you from actually enjoying that now. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know, there's these Zen pictures, and I, I wish I had all the, had them in front of me because we could review the stages. But there's this thing that there's these ten pictures in Zen where the the seeker goes through all these different stages, and at a certain point, the world disappears, and then finally, he's back in the marketplace riding his oxen, you know, in among the world, yeah. uh, you know, big smile on his face. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and and I went through a lot of what Jeff went through too, of a place where it was like a total, a sort of a a deconstruction, and some people have to go through that, like a, a deep deconstruction. But at the, the, the whole irony and humbling part about all this is, is how the, the, the world and all of its things and forms is still. Why why would you ever want to get rid of that? I mean, it's it's they're both here. They're both yeah. here. That's the whole thing. Maybe that's the nutshell right there. Is that that we think the separation is real? We see that it's not, and then we we play in the world mm -hmm. anyway. I mean, if you tried to get rid of it, you'd fail anyways, and you'd make your, you'd make yourself miserable. You'd, you'd yeah. be a pain in the ass to everybody else around you. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, I've heard someone say the formless Superman. The formless Superman is the one that has cultivated 
a formless awareness, which you know any any of us can do, and there are really teachings that are really really good at that. Mm-hmm. And I even talk a lot about that. In other words, there's just this uh, formlessness. You don't even call it awareness, a sense of no, no thing. Um, but then, if you if that becomes your only experience in the world, you almost have to avoid any situation where you might be tempted with sex or money or any of the worldly material things. Food. Food. I mean, food. I mean you know. Right. Anything. Yeah. So, so you're formless Superman, so you're wonderfully liberated when you're in your place of no world and no thought, and it's a freeing, wonderful place. Great. I mean, great. That's, that's part of the whole thing. But then what happens when you have to pay taxes? What happens when your your wife says, honey, can you come out of the room and stop meditating now? Right. You know? Yeah. Where are you then? You yeah. Know? I mean, the, the key word here, I think, is integration. Um, you know, we are human beings and we're alive. And, you know, we're not going to get away from that until we're not alive. Um, and therefore, if there is to be some sort of realization, it has to be an integrated one. Uh, I mean, you can live in a monastery or something, but even then, you're, there's interpersonal relationships with the other monks, and you have responsibilities. You got to bake yeah. the bread or whatever, and sweep the floor, and you know, there's still going to be activities, even though they may be simpler ones. Uh, but uh, so the whole key, in my understanding, is that you know, to be able to integrate this realization we're alluding to into real life, so to, so, so-called real life, you know, where uh, there's absolutely no conflict between, you know, skiing down a ski slope, if that's something you like to do, and residing in that pure awareness or pure silence. Yeah, right, and, and that's really balance, isn't it? Because yeah. if it were just one or the other, you would feel that imbalance in your life in one way or the other. You know, that's what we're kind of talking about the middle way. If I, if I was only sort of in this place where there was no world, or if I was only in this place where only the world and all of its things were real, there would be this sort of feeling as if like something, it just feels like a little bit off or something. But when you start to really incorporate, integrate that, it, it just feels balanced. It feels, mm-hmm. it feels good. It feels right. You know? And it actually enhances your experience of the world. I mean, I brought up the skiing example because for some reason it just came to mind, but that's something I love to do. And it's, I went skiing a few years ago, and I remember uh, and it was just a totally enjoyable time. And I remember sitting in the airport waiting to go home, and there were these kids hanging around the airport who, you know, really into snowboarding and stuff. And, uh, but, you know, looking at them and hearing them talk, I felt like there was a level of unhappiness there that must have not only, you know, hampered their enjoyment of life in general, but actually made skiing a lot less enjoyable for them, you know? I thought, gee, too bad they can't sort of see the whole experience with a much more clear vision. It would have been a nicer trip for them. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. I'm really glad that you that you brought this up because some, sometimes when I'm having you know talks and interviews, we we only stay sort of on one side or the other of it. So this yeah, this is good to talk yeah. about. And a, and a, and a people a lot of people listen to this stuff and come to these listen to these talks and co- go to seminars and whatever. And I mean you know we were talking a little while ago about people who might or about ourselves even having gone through phases where we were yearning and searching and craving and and so on and then eventually matured out of that but you can't i mean you can't necessarily jump from point a to point z in an instant i mean if you have an audience full of people many of them may still be at that stage and you might sort of mollify it a little bit by with this kind of talk but if they're still wired in in that way it may go on for some time 
And either they're going to, you know, get heavily into making a mood of having gone past that phase when they really haven't, or they're going to be straining or, or something, or, you know, uh, it's sort of like, you, you see my point? You might want to respond to that one. No, no, that's good. Yeah, I, I make, make sure I understand what you're asking. Right now, we're starting, or pretty soon, we're starting something called Living Realization, which is a, a text that I wrote, and we're starting it up with like, uh, with, a, with a text that's revised with this kind of talk in it mm -hmm. of, of balance. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that, that I've done with this when we have meetings, I'm, I'm toying with the idea of really kind of breaking the meetings up into different groups. And, mm -hmm. and just to say, you know, if you're, if you're really, really living in that sense of, of, of separation, that that's really your world. You know, then they come to this kind of a meeting where we, I can just speak to you f about, meet you exactly where you are in there mm -hmm. and, and get a little bit of a taste of the no selfness, you know. Yeah. Of the, and then there, there's other groups where you might be sort of like kind of stuck in a, in a, a place where it's like, you're just sort of kind of witnessing everything, but it feels like a little bit detached or mm -hmm. something, you know, like yeah. life, life is going on, but I'm somewhere over here, you know. Right. Aloof. So, yeah, aloof, right? Or detached. So then, come to a meeting where we can just talk about how that what you're calling the witness and what's mm -hmm. happening has no there's no separation there so yeah. we might just close that gap there might be other people who have gotten so far into the la la land like to the farthest shore where it's like just there isn't anything there's no body you know thought is a problem i've 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 dealt with it it's over mm -hmm. and for the, for them it might be a totally different set of talks it would be it might be like okay Let's examine that a little bit closer. Let's let's look at that and see if that's really you know. So that way you can just deal with it in, in different. And some people don't like that. They don't like to be grouped. But I feel like it's hard to talk in one way about this subject anymore. Mm. Yeah. That's a great idea. I like that idea. I guess you'd have to have large enough groups to be able to subdivide the people like yeah. that. But uh, I think that's really cool. Um, the uh, and, and you can't like. You know, as much as we would like to be in the mature, graduated spiritual group, whatever you want to call it, uh, you can't necessarily jump from one stage to the other. I mean, any more than you can go from third grade arithmetic to college trigonometry. You know, you're just going to find yourself lost, and it's not going to help you. You know, be, and we have talked earlier about you know progressive stages of development, and we're kind of getting reemphasizing that now, and that that whole concept is anathema in some circles. Um, but realistically speaking, you know, you don't just go go to some weekend seminar for your first taste of this whole thing and walk away with the level of realization that you may end up with, you know, 20 years from now. It's just, I'm sorry, but that's not the way it works. Yeah, I think I think, I think in most cases you're absolutely right. right? Yeah, so yeah. Might... Oh, there are always exceptions to yeah. every generality. I mean, so, yeah. for someone it may happen that way, but yeah. you know, but it's just so people, it's so rare. I yeah, mean, it's so rare. and I think that. Not to pick on neo-advited because a few years, and some might even say that I'm that way, but a few years ago I was much more neo-advited. The, the, the great promise that it didn't deliver, that hasn't delivered, not to pick on it because it has a lot of value because, you know, there really is a lot of value in sort of just saying, that, you know, this is it. Yeah. You know, like, you know if, if, that, if that works for somebody. Mm -hmm. But the great promise it didn't deliver on that is, I think, is that um, it, it, it doesn't connect with where people are experiencing themselves. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah you have to kind of meet people on their own level 
whatever that may be. And that's not meant to be a condescending phrase, their own level, as if I'm on yeah. some much higher level or something. But, you know, you have to tailor the teaching to the person you're speaking to, you yes. know, in any field, not only the spiritual field, but, you know, mathematics or any other field. You know, you, you, you speak to the level of the listener and then you re lead him on from there. Right, right. And it may very well be that, you know, the Neo-Advaita's popularity is due to the fact that there are a fair number of people around to whom that is appropriate at this stage. Yeah. And fine, they'll gravitate toward it. Yeah. I suppose those who don't resonate with it will stay away from it. But, you know, so as you say, we don't want to knock it. It has its place. I mean, everything has its place. Fundamentalist Christianity has mm -hmm. its place. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, atheism has its place. It all sort of depends on where you're at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's a really, really healthy view. Is and I think. I think more and more of us are sort of moving in that direction, where to say that all this stuff has its place. You know, yeah. I mean that instead of. I think the old way. I don't want to say the old way, but the old way is sort of like, well, my way is the only way. Yeah. You know, it's what I mean, like I've I've got it, and if you don't get it, I'm sorry. You know. And there are some teachers out there still talking that way. I'm afraid. I mean, it's a fundamentalist yeah. mentality that they've applied. Yeah. I mean, you, you find fundamentalist mentalities in every walk of life, from politics to religion to, yeah. you know, cooking and yeah. uh, <laughs> food. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are people yeah. who are fun fundamentalist about you should only eat raw food. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, they've applied it to Advaita. But you know, I mean, the true if you speak to if you read somebody like you know Nisargadatta or Ramana Maharshi, they were very much in line with the kind of things we've been saying here. I mean, Nisargadatta, and both of them emphasize the value of meditation. Uh, they also uh, emphasize the value of you know selfless service, if that was what you know worked for you, or self-inquiry, if you were at that level, or singing bhajans, doing devotional things, if that's where you're at. I mean, and that's the way the whole Indian tradition is. Also, it has so many different strata and so many different facets, so that wherever you are, there's something for you. Right. And I think that's really the, the, the sort of the, the great thing about the Internet and modern technology is that there are all these, these voices out there. And I think that some, of, some of us are kind of going, well, what? This is, there's so much out there. You know, I think people are sort of going, well, what? To, how to make sense of it all? Yeah. But I, but I think that's really, in the end, is going to be a good thing because it's going to be, it's going to be so many different voices and so, that eventually you're going to find what, where, where you are, you're going to find that match. And, yeah. then when that, and when that teaching and that method runs its course... You're not going to need that anymore, and you're going to go somewhere else, and, and, or you're going to stop doing what you're doing and do your own thing, or you're going to go be a gardener or something. But yeah. The, but the point is, is that uh, it's it's really kind of an amazing thing happening right now. Is it, and I think the more that we open our arms, this is just my view of it. Mm -hmm. The more that we open our arms to other methods, ultimately, then we 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 help this thing grow in its diversity and, and allow all those voices to find their place in this. Yeah, no, it's very good. And, uh, and like you say, I mean, you know, many people, of course, have spoken for some time about the, the notion that there's some kind of global enlightenment taking place or global awakening. And, you know, the, if that is so, and I, I tend to believe it is, the, the Internet is certainly critical in that process. I mean, you know, Jesus Christ could only walk around a few villages in, <laughs> in the few years of his teaching, you know, as far as a donkey could take you. Uh, but, yeah. you know, these days, I mean, you know, I'm talking to you this week. Next week, I'm talking to a, a woman in Thailand. And, yeah. you know, after that, some guy on the East Coast. And, mm -hmm. and, and then people, I look at my, uh, my Google Analytics, and there are people all over the world, you know, watching yeah. this. And, and uh, so it's just, uh, it's almost like if we think of, 
if we think of a, a, a much vaster, more profound intelligence kind of shepherding the universe along to higher and higher evolution, mm -hmm. then you know we as a as a planet have have reached a point at which we're ready for a, a quantum leap, and and these technologies are instrumental in that. Yeah, I, th I think they are too, and the internet is. But I think part of what, if you want to say what an ego is and what it does, is it it sort of wants to sort of take ownership and, and kind of stake a claim. Mm -hmm. uh, in all this, like a very personal claim, and, and I think it's easy to be as a teacher to do something like that. And I think that the, the further awakening is that when we open our eyes to that process, and then we start to welcome in all these voices. I always feel like uh, that that all the wisdom is speaking to us in all different directions. All we have to do is just listen, you know, and, and find out that the, the thing that we're ignoring or repressing or pushing away is being reminded of us but by somebody else. It's saying, take a look at that. Yeah. You know, it's like, get away from your extreme view and just take a look at what you're doing. And it's sort of just kind of teaching us in every direction. So that's, I think that's part of the, uh, if, if there is an awakening, that, to me that's part of it. Is, yeah. Do you find yourself um, listening to other voices a lot? I mean, do you read, do you, do you listen to recordings of other teachers and all in, in order to just sort of expose yourself to different perspectives and different ways of saying things? Yeah, I mean, just in the last year, I've gotten into Madhyamaka Buddhism, I mean, mm -hmm. very deeply, and it's just been an amazing thing to see what's gone on in a certain school of that, and, and just, just just to read it, kind of discover that. And yeah, and then I'll, I'll you know, sometimes I just like to to just play music, frankly, uh -huh. or, or to just spend time with the family and kind of get away from the whole talk of it. Sure, yeah. But... It can, it can get obsessive. Yeah, it gets a little obsessive. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm inter I'm, I'm always interested in um, in voices that are um, kind of fresh and that are really inclusionary and um, anything along those lines. You know, is really kind of grabs my ear. For yeah. Some uh huh. Um, do you actually do any spiritual practices? So, you, know, you say Buddhism. I mean, do you actually sit and do a kind of a Buddhist meditation or anything like that? You know, I don't meditate as much anymore. Mm -hmm. but, but but with the Madhyamaka Buddhism, I've actually been doing that analysis uh, just for like uh, eight or nine months, and I, I can mm -hmm. tell you about it if you want. But sure, yeah, let's hear a bit about it's, it. It's uh, in, in that school. It's um, it's basically it's we start from the idea that something has uh, an, an inherent existence that mm -hmm. exists by itself, and we start to look at what it's made of. Like it, it's made of all of its parts. Like you know, like my body has an arm and a and a head, and thoughts are part of the of the cell. I'm talking about the self has its own sure. existence. So there's the body and the arms and the feet and the toes, and the gut and the heart and the thoughts and the emotions. And then we try to actually go find the object that we think exists as a self, like as mm -hmm. a whole self. Mm -hmm. So we find an arm, but the arm is not the self. Right. It's the arm. Sure, because I mean you could have your arm amputated and you're still yourself. You know? Right, right, right. Right, and we find everything's like that. I find a thought, but that's not that's mm -hmm. not what I think of Scott. I don't think of the thought as the thing that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And so we find out that nothing has that kind of existence on its own side. You, you find out that, that uh, when we say Scott, that that only has a conventional existence. It doesn't have a. It's not a really separate thing, you know. Right. And the, you know, it's just what's a different. All that it is is non-duality in a different way. It just sort of arrives at it a little bit differently. Yeah. It's not like an awareness teaching. It's kind of an analytical approach to breaking everything down to its essence or something. Yeah, and I actually, funny you should say, uh, bring this up or that we should bring this up is because what the reason that I used it was to 
deconstruct some of the teachings that I had done before. I used it to deconstruct Advaita Vedanta terms. Hmm. I used it to like, because uh, the mind can sort of start to believe what it's saying about all the, you know, and through emptiness teachings, through this Buddhist teaching, I would go and do this this kind of analysis on, on my own spiritual insights and found that they were empty. <laughs> but that, you know, and that what it did is it just, it does, it just creates this sense of lightness about the whole thing. It's like, hmm. You know, it just could you give me an example of like a, a particular neo advaita concept uh, that you broke down and how, what process you went through? Yeah, no, I mean like oneness, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, like well, oneness. Someone says it's just a word. It's it's fine, but what happens is when you go look for it under this kind of analysis, you don't find it as a thing. You don't find it. You go look for it. You say there's a, there's a cup. Is that oneness? Well, I guess so. But we call it a cup. I mean, mm -hmm. We call this a cup. Is is my body oneness? Well, I guess you could say that, but it's really it's my body. I call it a body. Is is this phone oneness? And you find out that when you really go looking for the concept oneness as a real thing, all you find are a bunch of parts. You, so you could say that it exists, but it's inseparable from all all the parts that make it up. It's not like oneness as this some blanket thing that has mm. no differentiation. It's like a bunch of things. So it's like it's a balanced view, really. It sort of says there is a oneness, but it's dependent on all of these things, these, these definite things like Rick and Scott and thoughts mm -hmm. and feelings and rooms and things. So, yeah, because people often use it like oneness. Right. As if that has one meaning, or it's like an undifferentiated, like you spread butter over a piece of bread. Like that's just oneness. It's just right. oneness. But right. when you start looking for it, you find there's a rich diversity of things here. Well, and if it's really oneness, you know, I mean, let's let's instead of the word oneness, let's use uh, like a, one of the attributes that God is said to have, uh, omnipresence. Okay, if he's really omnipresent, where where is he not? You know, I mean, he he's not isolated off in some corner, and then there's all this other crap out here. It's like take anything, you know, take your thumb. If he's omnipresent, that then that thumb is thoroughly permeated by God. As yeah. much as as much as is the the lamp, the table, you know, a pile of dog poop, anything mm -hmm. is completely permeated by by that divine intelligence we refer to as God. And yeah. so, you know, uh, I, I once heard Maharishi say that, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the founder of Transcendental Meditation, he once said, you know, God is omnipotent, but there's one thing he can't do. He can't take himself out of your heart. Mm. You know, because he's omnipresent, and so mm. where where can you find him? Well, the most convenient place would be where you are. You know, yeah. and uh, and then maybe you'll find him everywhere after that. Yeah. And you it's know, nice. we're speaking in more more sort of uh, religious terms here, or spiritual terms, um, which I we might actually touch upon this. We might want to get into in this conversation the whole notion of you know uh, divinity as opposed to just this sort of impersonal. Uh, flavor that um, Neo-Advaita talk often has and it, it might be worth noting that the founder of Advaita, Shankara was as much a devotional person as he was an intellectual analytical one he wrote these beautiful devotional hymns and poems and so on and so forth anyway that's a kind of a, a riff that I just went off on <laughs> no I think it's beautiful because you know I, this brings up something for me is um, 
when I was really sort of in my more Advaita stage, so to speak, which I still use all that terminology, mm -hmm. and I think it's a beautiful, beautiful tradition, and I, and I love it. But what, what one thing I was doing at one point was I was using it actually to one-up my Christian brother. My brother is a Christian Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I was using it almost to suppress his language, his story of the divine, mm. in a way, because I was I was I was experiencing a peace beyond and that felt like it was beyond all concepts. Right. So in, in a way, I was doing violence to his story. I was mm -hmm. destroying his God and his Jesus, yeah. because I was trying to tell him that they were just ideas, mm. not realizing that I was actually also just spouting ideas. Yeah. And what I was, it was a very violent thing, and, and it was a humbling thing to come back to him years later and say, hey, look, you know what, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm really sorry for that, because I didn't realize the arrogance in it. And at that, at that point, I became more open to actually know more about his story, the story of his Jesus Christ and his evolution, and, uh -huh. and all these other stories, too, in, in, on, on, in the world that are telling. There's lots of different stories. And that's part of the being in the world part of it. And yeah. uh, stop doing violence to each other by pretending that my way of my concepts are sub somehow transcended. Mm -hmm. All of your concepts, are, they stomp out all of your concepts. seems to me that if one is thinking that way, the ego is still very much uh, in control. You know? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. I think it was, and it, I think it was. That's why it was humbling, humbling humility. You know, was seeing that that was very much ego in the name of, uh, I was calling it something transcendent, but it was really just ego kind of hiding out in another place. Yeah, no, that's really sweet. And uh, I would suggest that um you know speaking of god and 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 uh, jesus and all that stuff i that eventually that's where this realization heads i'm not saying that we're we're all going to become religious people but i think that there's a, a sort of a, a divine aspect uh you know there there's an i mean look at anything you know look at a a housefly under a microscope, or a cell under a microscope, or or look at pictures of the galaxies out in space, and you get this sense of this vast intelligence, uh, which is far beyond our comprehension, um, which we must be completely immersed in. Like I was saying before, you know, if it, uh, you know, just as a fish is immersed in water, um, but you know, we're only dimly aware of the 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 grandeur or the significance or the profundity of it. And, you know, I would suggest that um, this whole evolutionary process, whatever you want to call it, is heading us in that direction to, eventual, to an eventual experiential appreciation of that. Um, not, a, not a faith, not a belief, not a story, but an experiential living of that, just as we now have an experiential living of maybe presence or silence or a sense of oneness. There's, there's, that's, that's what the richness will eventually evolve into. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I use that word living realization, because it's a lived realization, you know, and it really is. And it's, uh, I don't know what to, we've been saying a lot of things about it, but it, it really is quite a mystery, actually. Yeah, it's, good yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had the privilege of meeting a couple of people. I mean, I, I was away this week. I was up in Michigan with Amachi, you know, the hugging saint. Mm -hmm. and, and some people, when they first hear about her, might trivialize the whole notion of what she's doing. Oh, yeah, she's hugging people. Isn't, <laughs> yeah. isn't, isn't that cute? Uh, <laughs> but when you actually kind of tune in on where she's at and, you know, the, the, the level of realization and, and just the strength which would enable a person to sit and do that for 24 hours without getting off the couch, even mm -hmm. to pee, uh, and and the, and the transformational effect that has on the 
you know, maybe the 10,000 people that she sees in a, in a, in a single day sometimes, uh, you kind of get a, a sense of, wow, you know, I mean, a human being can be much more than I realized or than I am. Uh, there's, it, it's humbling, you know, and it, and it makes you kind of appreciate that there is, in fact, a vast sort of scope of possibilities uh, that hu human life is, is potentially open to. And that we may, in fact, just be in kindergarten, you know, however much progress we've made. I think that's a really, really healthy approach uh, because I, th I think that's that, that sort of is the danger of sort of saying or even implying, you know, somehow one has arrived because, I mean, love, I mean, what is that? It's so, it, it goes so deep, there's no end to it. I mean, it, it, it goes into every nook and cranny of our life. And that's the way I, I think of it is that, that the love does. And someone like her doing that, um, look at how how easy it is for us to sort of just stay within our walls of separation and division between each other. It's so easy. It's so lazy, but it's what we've been doing for years and years and years. And to think that there's no end to the depth of how we can actually see through that. And, and yeah. then why would you ever want to say, I've arrived, arrived at what? I mean, what have you arrived at? Yeah, right. And, I mean, when you think of, um, you know, the the sort of the, the major league examples of, compassion in this world that we've seen, you know, uh, and what is actually possible to express and to, you know, transmit to others in, in, in terms of love and compassion. You know, I, I really just feel like I'm in Little League. Um, you know, my heart is like a rock compared to, compared to what it, it could potentially be. Yeah. And again, you know, that's, I mean, some people would hear that talk and they, and they think I was really screwy for, for talking that way because why aren't you just, you know, it, it's, it sort of implies a sense of seeking again, you know, and future development and all this stuff which is so kind of like off the program in, <laughs> in certain circles. But, but once again, I feel like there's, there's no conflict between having a realistic understanding of the range of possibilities and being complete and being completely sort of content at the stage you're at. That's where I'm at. I totally understand. I, I think the conflict only comes from the from the mental position that it's one or the other. I mean that that like because what they're saying is that there's there's in simple being there's just this profound love of just being, which is true actually because you you know that's what we experience in the simple presence of the love, but at the same time, there's this other part of our experience that where the mind sort of continues to buy into divisions and those can be seen through and then like this greater capacity to love and development happens and, and both of those are actually available the only thing that keeps that from happening in my view is believing that it can only be one or the other right that, you see it's only just a, it's a viewpoint if you look at it it's, it's really just a mental viewpoint that says it has to only be timeless being mm -hmm. or it only has to be development you see yeah I suppose we should all get T-shirts that have the word "only" on them and one of those one of those <laughs> diagonal lines through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. that's I the mean, great. Yeah, it's all it's possibilities, funny. you know. Search is a candy mint and a breath mint. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if you're old enough to remember those commercials. <laughs> um, what, were you, what was I going to say? Anyway. So, t so tell me more about what the practices that you do and, and sort of where you are in your... And you kind of explained it all, but I mean, what, what stuff do you do? Um, well, I, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I learned Transcendental Meditation when I was 18, and uh, that was in 1968, and I practiced that regularly. Uh, in fact, I still meditate. Um, I, I use a mantra, 
which um, you know, I was chatting with somebody the other day, and he was saying, "Oh, mantra, that's just a thought," you know. But it's a thought which which transcends its own activity. Uh, so it's not. It's like you know, you might say, oh, "I use a car." Uh, oh, you, why would you be in a car? You know, you you want to be in Los Angeles. Well, yeah, but the car can can take me to Los Angeles, <laughs> uh, and then I'll get out of the car. And that's what happens when you meditate. Actually, you know, you ha- you have a mantra, or the way I do it pick up a mantra and you're, you're thinking it in a certain effortless natural way and next thing you know it's not there and, and, and you're just sort of resting in silence and, and then maybe some thoughts bubble up again and then maybe and then you pick up the mantra again next thing you know you're resting in silence and, and through uh, repeating that process over time that silence just gets sort of integrated and anchored into the nervous system or into the awareness and is lived in the midst of all circumstances and um, just continues to grow. So that's it in a nutshell. I do a little yoga and stuff, and then I also obviously always am talking and reading and thinking about this kind of thing with, with people. Yeah, that's part of it is just kind of communicating because you can you can always hear something from somebody, I think, and I do all the time, that sort of balances my viewpoint about all this. And Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about the Internet, too, is that there's just, again, so many voices no, that's good. I think a lot of a lot of the, the a lot of this stuff is like that. In one way or the other, we're we're recognizing, like you say, like that people call it a silence, or you could say it's awareness, or the sense of everything that's okay, sense of well-being and presence. Mm-hmm. That plus this other aspect of what's going on here in terms of thought and emotion and sensation, and how can I recognize more deeply that underlying presence, sort of underlying, just to use a word. Yeah. And then also see that that this other part is always happening to this thought and I think that's really the to me that's the middle way you know the way I've been talking about it and so your practice is the same is it's really the same thing I yeah think. uh-huh um, and obviously and I've gone through all sorts of phases with this over the years you know very fundamentalist in my thinking at a certain point like everybody should be doing this and and so on and I've come to you know appreciate the value of a diverse paths and approaches and um, you know so I, I'm very I kind of cringe when I think of things I may have said or done in the past just like you and your brother you know yes. and I think oh my god what an idiot I was <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, you know but I don't know it's uh, it, the whole thing is a great adventure and, and a lot of fun and uh, do you do this full-time I mean is this like a profession for you or do you have a regular job I'm an attorney actually oh are you okay yeah, that's what I do. That's my day job, they say. Uh-huh. And and so I just meet with people one-on-one on the phone at night. You know, two or three people at night will call. Uh-huh. And then, I, and then I'll, I travel around and do talks and things. But it's really not the way that I make money, although I'm not opposed to doing more of it. It's just that right now it's not... It's not it's happening. Not, yeah, it's not. Uh, because I've just been doing so much writing more than anything else, and really that kind of... Um, that plus work kind of takes up my time. Yeah, are you married? I'm in a relationship, not married. Uh-huh. Okay. Any kids in the, in the trail behind you? Three, three dogs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You got so a yes, I have, I have three hairy kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I sort of feel the same way. I'd love, I'd love it if this thing had somehow evolved into a profession. You know, some radio station calls me up and says, "Hey, would you do this for us? He'll pay you." But um, in the meanwhile, I, I do other things. I do search engine optimization, you know, getting more traffic to people's websites. And, oh, yeah. And uh, so I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. We get, they say keep your day job until... <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. As they say, don't quit your day job. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, if it happens, it happens. Uh, you know, you, you sort of like you, you start a thing and it, it has a momentum. I, I forget who it was, Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln or somebody talked about how the important thing is just to sort of start and then and then all kinds of unexpected uh, opportunities and and uh, aids and assists come along and and you know move move the project along in ways you would not have foreseen as long, but you just have to start and so yeah yeah and I think that's also the value of seeing sort of the non-dual as the as the uh, the value of the non-dual is sort of kind of emphasizing less and less my what I'm going to get out of it personally. Mm-hmm. And once that kind of falls away, I, that's my, my own experience, is once that kind of falls away, and it can kind of linger around for a while, like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I would still like to do, but kind of once you sort of make room and, and you're kind of like, you're really just sort of open to how it ever, however it's going to unfold without without feeling a sense of anxiety about having to control that a whole lot. I find yeah. that it just opens it up. It's like the next thing happens, and it's mm-hmm. very, very natural, very, very natural. And you're still going to have desires. I mean, you're a human being, so you might have the desire, oh, I'd really love to do this full time. But yeah. it's, it's sort of like your, your fulfillment in life doesn't hinge upon whether or not that happens, you know? Right. And you absolutely have desires. I mean, how else would we choose which, what we eat? Yeah, how you else? go into a restaurant and the waiter says, may I take your order? You don't say, well, it's all the same. And besides, <laughs> there is no me and there is no order. And you know, yeah. <laughs> It's like right. you could get kicked out pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If people think it's all the same, then, then let me take all of your money away. Yeah. You have no – and take all of your vehicles and your computer – and then, you know, see if that's the same as having all that stuff. I mean, on the level of appearance, it's not the same. Right. And, and I guess the most we can do is, like you say, is recognize that at the, at the basic level we're already free, that our well-being is perfectly and always present here, mm-hmm. and at the same time sort of navigate through this life with that knowing in hand at all times. Mm-hmm. And then I think that does actually change the level of appearances in our life. I think it changes us. I mean, yeah, very much so. Yeah. There's an analogy which I find useful. Imagine a building that has like 10 stories or something. And as you go up to each story and go and look out the window, you see what you saw earlier, but you see a kind of a bigger picture, a bigger circumference. And the bigger circumference, it it contains the the previous one, and therefore it doesn't uh, conflict with it at all. And, you know, you go up to the top, but eventually you get to the top of the building and you see a much wider view. but, and all those sort of narrower views are completely compatible with that mm. wider view, even though they're very different mm. uh, and much more limited, but they're completely compatible and you're comfortable with all of them. That's really, really, really nice, actually. That, that makes me think of something you said earlier about the fundamentalist. And we were talking about that because you, your first comment about that was that actually that actually has a place in our world. And you know it does because mm-hmm. in some ways, if you think, if, if I don't have access to that sort of sense of well-being and presence that, that feels like, like a, that deep, deep okayness, you know, like it's almost a certainty, but it's not mental. It's like a certainty of everything is really at the at the basic level is okay. Yeah. If I don't have that, then I'm going to have to, at some place, try to find some sort of certainty yeah. and structure and order. And one way to do it is just to, to really grasp on to something yeah. in, in a fundamentalist way, because if I don't have anything else, I might fall into complete nihilism if I don't have my fundamentalism. If I, I might believe that life is totally meaningless. So it does serve a purpose. And what I think was nice that you were, I was envisioning that, and I was thinking that I've had my fundamentalist streak, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. certainly have, and sort of that can come back at any point in little, in little 
ways. Right. Uh, because it's still a part of the view. It's still a part. I can. I can. There's a little fundamentalist inside me. Mm-hmm. You know that I could. I can hear that voice come up. You know, but I don't have to push the voice away. I can just see, sort of see that it's. And then, therefore, when I see it out with other people, I don't have to attack it so much. I can sort of own my inner fundamentalist in a way and say, yeah, I, I understand that voice, but it doesn't have to dominate because I've got this little wider view about things. Mm. You know, I thought that was nice the way that you said it. I think the other way creates all the problems. The, the, the other way would be now that I feel like I've overcome fundamentalism, I'm going to now push it out of my view Mm-hmm. And it it has no purpose on the earth. Now I'm going to be at war with it, right? Everywhere or any other view that I might have had along the way. Then like, you've just you've just adopted a new fundamentalism. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's <laughs> real self deception. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a I, I read a thing last night in a book um, by Mariana Kaplan. If you've never read her books, you might really enjoy them. Have you ever heard of her? Yeah, yeah I've read her books. I like yeah. her. Uh, it was a quote from somebody, and, and he said, the, the bad news is, you know, you're in free fall, and there's nothing to grab onto. The good news is, there is no ground. <laughs> That's good, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, she has that good book, uh, Halfway Up the Mountain. Yeah, I read that. Now I'm reading Eyes Wide Open, which is her, her next one. It's yeah. uh, Cult- Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path is the subtitle. Yeah. Uh, great book. Well, I often quote her... I, I, actually, I butcher her play, which I don't even know the name of because I've searched on Google, but mm-hmm. I was at a non-dual conference, and sometimes I'll use her play in order to talk to people who are kind of in that no-self place. As Her a play? Of, what do you mean her play? It's a, it's a play on, again... She actually I, I, wrote a play, literally, or are you saying just her way of speaking? That she wrote a play. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, and I apologize to her if she's listening right now because uh-huh. I'm going to butcher it, but you need okay. to go to her to hear the right version of it. Uh-huh. It's essentially, I saw her at a conference, and she was saying, it was something about my Zen boyfriend. She was explaining about uh, how, you know, she had, in the fictitious character her, she had dated the Advaita boyfriend and the Zen boyfriend. And, and uh, you know, she, again, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, she would go up to the to her boyfriend and say, you know, you're so, you're so emotionally distant. I feel like you're not there. And he would say, well, there is nobody here. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so there's no self, and, there, and there's, no, there's no other either, so... And she was trying to get across to him that you know that's that's fine in one sense, but you know I'm here and you're you're here. Yeah. And so, and and eventually you know in the in the play I think she she sort of breaks up with all of the boyfriends because, but her point being is what we've been saying all along, and I use that play with people as a way to sort of distance myself in a conversation to kind of put it into like listen to her play what she's trying to say. And that sometimes will reach somebody, and sometimes it won't. Just kind of, kind of jar them out of that idea, mm. you know, that there, that there is nobody and no one, as a, as a total, like absolutistic way yeah. of thinking. Remember that song by Donovan? Uh, First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. Yeah. I think he actually took that from some Zen thing, but um, you know, and both are right. You know, fine. There, there's a mountain. On some level, there is no mountain. Yet there is a mountain, and uh, you know if you you, you you really don't need to make it one or the other. Yeah. You know you can sort of embrace both realities, and they all fit. In fact, the, the word Brahman in in the Hindu terminology actually I don't know the literal translation or the roots of the word, but what it implies or what it signifies is a complete embracing 
of both the absolute and the relative, you know, the unity and the diversity. It's some, sort of a synergistic thing where it's more than the sum of its parts, and its parts include all the diversity and the unified state. Right, and I think that I don't want to like lump all the traditions together and say that they're the same, but I think that most traditions are the ones that I like end up there. Mm-hmm. You know, they just end up there. And how they get somebody there it may be very, very different. It's not like it's one place that they end up, because again, I don't want to say that, I don't want to, I know how, how that is to sort of dis- try to do violence to a tradition by sort of reducing it, right. you know, to say this, I know what it is, because I don't, I've not really studied some of these things deeply. Mm-hmm. I think to really appreciate a tradition, you really have to get into it and understand what yeah. it is that they're saying. But from what I can tell, there's lots of similarities in mm-hmm. these traditions about that. You know, the Zen marketplace, the uh, Shankara, where Brahman is the world, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the world is illusory, which is, I say, the right. world. Well, yes. Brahman alone is real. Um, right. The world is an illusion. Bra- the world is Brahman. <laughs> right. Brahman is the world, right? Yeah. And then the middle way in Buddhism, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you kind of start to listen, like, what are the traditions really trying to tell us, you know? Uh, they're trying to tell us something, you know. Yeah, and of course within each tradition you have a whole spectrum. I mean, in, in Christianity you have the Bible thumpers, and then you also have beautiful mystics who mm. you know, understood this, the, the things we're talking about here. And, you know, in Judaism, you have the Kabbalah, which is very mystical, you know, sort of a insightful tradition. And in uh, Islam, you have the Sufis. You know, some of, if you ever listen to Llewellyn Von Lee, yes. um, I've got a lot of his recordings that I listen to. He's, you know, brilliant and very conversant with the kind of uh, concepts we're we're discussing here. So you have the whole spectrum in every religion. Again, you know, catering to people according to where they're at. You know, and, right, right. and then they they move along the spectrum, hopefully. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, just just for those who are listening, if you if you come and, and you talk to me, one thing I might I might do is I might say, forget everything that Rick and I said. Mm-hmm. Forget that, because all that we're going to do here, and that's why I say in my addiction book, all we're going to do here is we're going to just take moments in which we're at rest without having to know anything. And I might start something so simple. And then somebody might say, well, that's not what you and Rick were talking about. <laughs> you know, but I might say, but let's keep it really, really simple, though, in the beginning and just start looking very, very basically. So, yeah, and, and then all the traditions kind of, they, they do it differently, how they, how they progress through that. But that's how, where I sometimes start. Yeah. So what are you doing with the, uh, the drug addicts? You've got some kind of recovery program. Um, what, is that actually underway? Or are you still developing it or what? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing that's coming out is the Living Realization website, which is I kind of want to talk about that a little bit more first because the, the, the addiction's mm-hmm. coming up. But the Living Realization website, and if you, if, if you go to my newsletter, I'll announce it when it's mm-hmm. ready to go, but it's going to be its own site, and it's really, really kind of taking, it's like a kind of a combination of, what's exactly what we've been talking about mm-hmm. uh, is, is uh, um, kind of recognizing that, the non-duality, moving beyond the belief in separation, but then incorporating the world, incorporating duality and the, you know, all that stuff. So that's coming out and first. Um, so kind of really excited about that. Um, Before you go on to the next thing, let me ask yeah. a question about that. Um, when you talk to people that way or present that information on your website, uh, does every do you find that a lot of people just get frustrated because it's conceptual for them and they're not able to kind of uh, link into the experiential dimension of it, or does that does the concept trigger that experience for most people in 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 your experience? 
Well, that's a good question because in living realization, like the mm -hmm. first chapter is devoted to just recognizing basic everyday awareness. It's mm -hmm. like it, it peels it down to its basic source, and it just invites people to like to just go check and see whether awareness is here in all moments. So you might be having a peaceful moment, and you, you might see that there's just awareness, aware of that peaceful moment and the thoughts and the feelings, but it's just sort of a basic awareness. And then you might be like really frustrated later in the day, and it might feel uncomfortable, but can you see that there's still awareness there? Yeah. And, it, and it invites people to take moments in the beginning where they're just not thinking, but they're just doing that very, it's like an old Dzogchen practice for mm -hmm. short moments where you just, you just, you're, you're there. It's like a living meditation, and you're doing that all throughout the day. So there's really no conceptualizing in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's just very, very experiential. Very, and so the people start to get a feel for that. Now, and, isn't there a danger that people might sort of divide their minds by trying to sort of introspect throughout the day and check in on that awareness while they're at the same time having to work at, on the phone or whatever they do in their job? I mean, there could yeah. be a bit of a because ultimately this realization of this awareness is not something you have to think about or put your attention on. It's just there, no, it's you know. Always there. And, and if you try to make it a mental practice where you're sort of conjuring it up through you know, attention, it could be a bit divisive, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and so right. So the so the, all the rest of the chapters talk about inseparability. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the rest of the chapters are devoted to seeing that when a thought arises, it arises inseparably within the awareness. Hmm. So when a phone call happens at work, that's actually, all of that is happening right there within that basic awareness. Mm -hmm. So you're there and there's that awareness and it's listening. And there's that awareness and it's, there's thoughts happening in the awareness. And then there are emotions happening all inseparably within the awareness. So it bridges, through the whole text, it sort of bridges that gap and it sort of says there isn't a gap from the mm -hmm. very beginning it just sort of doesn't give you the gap in the beginning mm -hmm. so the short moments of, without um, labels uh, we say in the text are just an initial practice just to kind of recognize that there's awareness here and then once you get a feel for that you start saying that all thoughts and states and sensations and emotions and experiences in the world is happening inseparably within that I see. and then yeah so it moves that way good okay because I have seen people make that sort of a, a kind of a practice where they become rather odd in their behavior because they have to keep pausing and checking in, you know, <laughs> am I here, where's awareness, and then they can say another few words to you and then they have to pause again, you know, you, yeah. don't, want, you don't want to develop that sort of thing. No, no, absolutely, and that's why we try, like, inseparability is a big part of that whole teaching, mm -hmm. which means that, that a thought happens inseparably within awareness it just goes shh like that and it, it's, it's always awareness here and it just goes shh like that and so when you get when you talk that way people just automatically start to look and see whether that's true i mean uh -huh. is, is is there awareness here yeah but, and then there's a thought and that's fine and the thought's happening and then it's gone do you ever do you ever have people say to you scott i i've heard everything you've said i've read your books i've listened to your talks i just don't get it you yeah. know i'm totally frustrated yeah. I, I have dogs too. You can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what, do people say that sometimes? And what do you say to them? You know, what I, it's it's individual because uh -huh. sometimes there might be issues where I say to people, you know, go go try some psychotherapy. There's mm -hmm. some issues from childhood that I think that you, that you might benefit by just go talking to somebody. I might mm -hmm. just start that. Or I might say, you know, I do shadow work with people, which is really ego work. Mm -hmm. And I, because there, there are people who come to me that have really, they're really at war yeah. in, in some ways with things. And sometimes it's good just to sort of like do some shadow work with them so that they mm -hmm. can see 
that really work. You're, you're kind of at war with yourself in a way. You know, yeah. it's really not non-dual. It's sort of ego work. So I might go there, or I might get them into a particular uh, investigation that that makes them sort of really, really feel what's happening in their body. Because people are sometimes mm. just up here. You Good know? point. Yeah. Or some people are just down here in the emotions. Yeah. They're so they're so disconnected from their intellect that they're just in the body. Yeah. So you kind of have to feel it's individual. So I'll kind of listen to them and I'll see that they're they're really sort of really heavy in the intellect part. So I mm -hmm. might say, feel into your body, feel feel that, and let that be your guide. Or there's some some people who will say, you know, the intellect is is a bad thing. Hmm. And I'm only interested in feeling. Well, I'll say, well, then let's go into the intellect a little bit. You yeah. Know? So you just kind of feel it out a little bit and see where they're at, and then eventually you work them into the middle way of of sort of really that the place where you and I've been talking about, where mm -hmm. you want to bring them into this place where they feel like there's an aspect of their experience that is just really, really okay, always, and that's really, really important. And then that has no independent existence from everything, every thought, every emotion, every experience. This mm -hmm. interview. And That's you great. Yeah. You sound like you really have a gift for this and for really tuning into people and, and helping them along. I just wanted to mention a couple quick things that your previous uh, words evoked. Um, one is you were asking about my own practice, and uh, yeah. I forgot to mention <laughs> that for me these days, about you know, meditation is largely a matter of in exploring the body, you know, investigating uh, what may happen to be noticed somewhere heart, head, whatever, and it's like this healing process and on a real subtle level. I can sort of feel like knots dissolving and if there's some emotion, it has a physiological counterpart and, and you can feel that physiological yeah. counterpart and, and that sort of resolves something that's causing that, that emotion or whatever. Um, so that's, that's just one thing I wanted to add because I hadn't completed my answer. And uh, another thing is uh, this thing about therapy I think is very interesting that Mariana Kaplan actually mentioned in her book that I'm reading that that boyfriend who was, you know, there is no me, blah, blah, is actually in therapy now, <laughs> uh, you know, having kind of realized that he's not enlightened and that, and uh, yeah. that uh, you know, there might be some stuff he could work on. Yeah. Um, and there, that, that, this woman I interviewed a few weeks ago, Leslie Temple Thurston, you know, even after very profound awakenings, um, did about four years of Jungian therapy. Uh, with a, a really good therapist, which she feels was like profoundly um, beneficial for her. So uh, I think we should just kind of mention, and since you since you brought it up, that there are all kinds of ingredients that can be thrown into the soup that can really be of use to people. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the, you know it's really good that you're saying this because somebody mentioned that uh, we kind of have the McDonaldized version of enlightenment, whereas if you're supposed to get it in one drive-by, you know. Like, what what it does? It's oversimplistic thinking. You know what I mean? And, and and it's great if you get it if you're if you're wonderfully free completely. But um, in the McDonaldized version, it's like it, it only has to be in the Eastern, only everything Eastern, or only Buddhism, or there's no room for therapy, or there's only room for therapy. There's no room for non-dual, or yeah, yeah. or they're only intellectual not emotional. It's mm -hmm. like compartmentalizing our experience in all these different ways. You know, yeah. it's only emotional, it's not intellectual or vice versa. Right. Or it's only awareness, it's not appearances. Yeah, you know, and all like, of that is in complete uh, uh, contradiction to what, how we're actually made up. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we're, there's all these components. Right, inseparably. Yeah. yeah. 
And obviously you can work on one particular thing and it might help everything else. You can pull one leg of a table and the other legs are going to come along. But uh, it can help in many cases those other legs are really stuck. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it can, really, it can often help to sort of take a multifaceted approach. Yeah. And I can just hear people listening to this because I've heard it before. They'll say, oh, my God, they're just talking about more seeking. And what, and, and, and yeah, Killaby has lost his, mm -hmm. his bearings. He used to be mm -hmm. so right on. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, really, no, there'll be people saying it. And, you know, I, I think we've already said it all, but yeah. <laughs> But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be a lot of anxiety seeking. One of the first things I help people with is just to see through the seeking from the beginning. We deal sometimes just with that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you, you have that. It's like there's this, feels like there's just this openness within your experience that you can really explore all of these different divisions, you know. And it's, it's sort of break through all these divisions. But once you kind of experience that openness and presence, it's like you really, really have what exactly what you need to explore and the seeking kind of just starts to die out in that once you realize that presence I think uh-huh yeah, yeah. Uh, or as we said earlier it doesn't it doesn't I mean the, s the seeking in the sense with, with the with the connotation of yearning striving craving kind of dies uh -huh. out but but still the you know enthusiasm for progress on a basis of contentment continues yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we don't want to kill enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, or even enthusiasm even sounds too agitated. It's just, just like this. Yeah, there's an evolutionary momentum in the universe. I mean, there's a force of evolution which is just ca carrying us all along. Um, you've probably heard of Chuck Hillig. Uh, he's been at some of these non-duality conferences and everything. And uh, he gave a very beautiful interpretation to the nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat. Have you ever heard him say that? <laughs> it's like, think of it. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Okay, so there's a stream, and you're going along with it, and you're going downstream. You're not trying to row upstream, but and you are rowing. You know, you're not uh, you're not just sort of coasting along and drifting into branches and things like that. There's there's some sort of initiative taking place. You're rowing, yeah. and then merrily, 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 emphasized four times. Um, you're you're doing this with joyfulness. Life is but a dream. You know, right. <laughs> it's a very profound little song. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, whoa. That's, I have to give Chuck some props for that one. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's a good one. So did you finish telling me about this, the new website and that whole phase? Because then we were going to talk about the addiction thing after that. Did you finish? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to let people know about that because uh, cause, cause the living realization really does capture both of these two things that we've been talking about and I, and I think it's just it's been really important in my own path and I, and I think it will be for more people who they just as long as they come open to it that mm -hmm. you know these two these two things which are not two things you know <laughs> but uh yeah two, so two sides of the same coin right two sides of the same coin mm -hmm. um yeah so the natural rest book is a book about addiction you were asking me about mm -hmm. that yeah and natural rest is just um it's really very similar to living realization, but it's just put in language, I think, that people who struggle with addiction can understand. The thing that I found in my own recovery was that I, one thing that I found in myself and in almost every addict that I met was a sort of um, kind of an avoidance of 
neg- a kind of a wanting to move away from negative and uncomfortable feelings and thoughts yeah. tor- towards it, something that would cover that up. Or blot even, them out, yeah. Right, blot them out or medicate them or, mm-hmm. or even get rid of them if we can find a way to get rid of them, you know. And I, and I found that, that in my life, that's the thing that continued me in this, this, the, the kind of seeking of the bad kind that we talked about. Mm-hmm. The seeking that comes from lack and, and it's like this constant personal momentum towards future that's just not, not the healthy kind of exploring and, exploring and unfolding we were talking about, right. but the addictive seeking. Mm-hmm. That I found that, that by, by very definition of trying to get rid of things, uh, Whatever they were, we were trying. We, we were. I was constant in that, that addictive seeking mode. So, w- what I began to experience in my own life is that when fear or anger would arise, if I would simply just let that be there, which means to let it not mentally, not with a thought that says I'm. Go- I mean, that might be the first thing that helps me. Yeah. So, can I, but to really, really let it be there as its own arising without having to place any viewpoints on it about whether it's good or bad or whether mm-hmm. it's uh, I should get rid of it or anything. When I started to let some of those energies be there, I found that they just all have a temporary lifespan. Right. You know, and, and they're not the big monsters that I thought they were. <laughs> yeah. The, the monster aspect comes in when I start telling stories about them and, mm. and, and whatever else the mind is doing. So natural rest is just this invitation to it's really to, to, to recognize presence and, and to allow all those energies to be there finally, to actually allow them to be there and to notice the ways in which we are trying to um, get rid of them, cover them up, neutralize them, um, seek something better, just kind of illuminating all those things through different words in the text. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it also incorporates shadow work and um, some other things, just about relationships and the importance of group support. Like you know, we want to in natural rest. The thing that's so wonderful about some recovery groups is that people get together and they actually support each other. You yeah, know? sure. They say, you know, I know where you've been. I've been there. Just stick with this. We're here for you. That kind of thing is, I think, is good in addiction, when, especially when you're first getting clean. So it incorporates that of how to set up a group, a natural rest group where people are together. But what they're talking about in the meetings is how to incorporate presence into your life. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, sort of. That's kind of the focus of the whole, the whole book and all of the groups. So. So I presume you've actually worked with some people, um, some addicts, and used this approach, and uh, you found it effective, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I found it effective in my own life with mm-hmm. obsession, you know, obsession of all kinds. And then I, I found it effective with people that I'm working with, yeah. Great. Yeah. Have you ever, um, what kind of law do you practice? Um, it's, uh, it's, just, it's a small town practice, so anything that comes in the door, mm-hmm. okay. basically. Did you become a lawyer before or after your 20-year drug period? Oh, it was right at the end there. So it was about three or four, and the... the Luckily, the state bar knows about this. <laughs> yeah, so you must have been like 35, 40 years old or something by the time yeah. you went to went to law school. Oh no, I was I was in tw- I was uh, 28 when I went to law school. Graduated oh. when I was 31. Mm-hmm. Continued to be a lawyer for about three years during my addiction, mm-hmm. and then got and then got clean then. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you actually went to law school and and all that while you were taking drugs. Yeah, and of course, there's a period of law school where I was able to stay clean enough to focus, but then mm. at the end of there, it got kind of bad. Yeah. Huh. I don't know why I wanted to know that, but it was just curious. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And uh, the um, have you have you ever like worked in prisons or anything like that? Gone in there and and tried to uh, apply some of this work? No, but I know a guy by the name of Kenny Johnson who's. Oh, I know Kenny. Yeah. Yeah. I've met Kenny. Um, he's been in prison himself, I believe. And, yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, the last time I saw him was at an AMA thing out in uh, California. Mm. Um, and he came to my town here, Fairfield, Iowa, also one time gave a talk. Yeah. Have you ever done anything like that? Like what? Going, going to prisons. No. I was in one a couple of times just for a couple of nights for marijuana possession when, <laughs> <laughs> when I was a teenager. Yeah, um, but I've uh, never actually – I really haven't worked – well, actually, come to think of it, you know, when I was teaching TM, I did go into a prison one time and, and sit with somebody and check their meditation. I guess they were already a meditator. And, and a lot of uh, – some of my friends who's, who are still in the TM movement, which I'm not, um, offer programs in prisons and so on. So mm. that, kind of, that kind of thing goes on. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, the you know, Vipassana meditation is also used success, very successfully in prison. There's a, there's a movie called Doing Time, Doing Vipassana, a docu documentary about it um, being taught in the prisons in India. But anyway, this is sort of, the reason I guess we're talking about this is that it, it indicates that uh, you know, all this talk that we've been having is not some pie-in-the-sky uh, you know, highly abstract, ethereal kind of thing. I mean, it can really be brought down to the most nitty-gritty level of life, and 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 can benefit people who are, uh, you know, s seriously suffering and and encountering severe problems. It has its significance on all levels. I think it does. I mean, if, I think if one takes an absolutistic view of it to say that. Uh that all there is is sort of a pure awareness or all that there is or, or that's an advaita way of talking about it but if mm -hmm. someone sort of takes it all there is is the absolute mm -hmm. then they, 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 they might not agree with what we're saying yeah. but I, I think that uh, I think that if once you get off of that viewpoint and you start to really look at how it actually does change in the, in the world of change how it actually does transform people's lives and their relationships and their sense of peace and um Lots of other things, just to mm -hmm. how much conflict one has with other people and things. Sure. Then I think it does. It has. It really is very practical, actually, and it goes into all sorts of areas of life, addiction, and like you say, prison. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be said for relationships, frankly. That that when we start to kind of incorporate a little bit of this, not not really incorporate it, but sort of bring this bring this into our relationships. I mean, it, and it, it naturally comes into our relationships because this is what we're discovering in our lives. You can't mm -hmm. keep it out. I mean, but when you really start to look at, I mean, just in my own relationship, not only with my partner, but with my father and my business associates, associates all of that, um, it does It does change that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of infuses it with some deeper value of life. Yeah. Um, I think you're more tuned into the neo advaita world than I am, and I hope that term is not an insult. Uh, but you know what I mean. I mean all the Jeff Foster and all these people that are out there teaching. Um, and earlier on in, in this uh, talk, you alluded to the fact that a lot of people seem to have moved out of uh, a more fundamentalist stage, uh, as you have, and um, kind of come to embrace a more holistic view of life, you know, including both absolute and relative. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, is, is there a general trend among the so-called neo-advaita world uh, toward that? Or, or are a lot of people just as ensconced in that absolutist view as ever? 
Uh, I mean, someone like Jeff, if you talk to Jeff, he very much these days tries to meet people where they are. I think he's got, the, the for example, the reputation of sort of being neo advida but it was never anything that he would call himself. Uh-huh. I think he's gone through a sort of an evolution in the way that I have. I think that... I think it's real easy to kind of have real absolutistic thinking in this. I think it's just something that happens because in one way you sort you really do see that you know separation really isn't real, that it isn't what we thought it was. And so that can be such leave such an imprint in the mind. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's, it's the mind where it's leaving an imprint. It's living in, in, as a thought and it, therefore if it's a thought, it's it, it has the possibility of becoming absolutistic, you know, mm-hmm. like and so I think that Jeff has gone through a process where he's finding it. I can't speak for him, but he'll say this. Yeah. He, he finds it's just easier to sort of just meet people where they are to talk about their life and, and, mm-hmm. and, and all this stuff that we're talking about. But Jeff, you know, others aren't actually. Others are sort of sticking to the kind of all there is is this, no method, no practice, no investigation. That all implies a doer and all that stuff. And you know what? I hope that does work for, for some people. I know that one of the traps of it is that, is that it, people walk away believing that there's no self. It, it's sort of left only in the intellect. Or because, or they have a nice experience that feels good or feels freeing, and somehow the experience, the memory of that, becomes really important. Mm. Uh, instead of like a, more like a lived realization where you're, you know, you're open and you're, let it, you're, not, you're not landing solidly on all these little ideas and insights. Uh, I think a lot, a lot of people are kind of, it's very, very, you know, I've noticed it's just really, really seductive to talk mm. about this in terms of all there is is this. Yeah. It's just really seductive. It's very sexy, you know. It's like, it's like uh, man, that's it. Yeah, he's, he's saying it, you know, that's it. But if, you're, but if you're experiencing separation and suffering, and if you, then it's, it's almost dishonest to sort of, yeah. you know. I went through a big phase of that myself back in the 80s when I was teaching TM. I mean, I would I would give these sort of analytical talks, kind of breaking everything down to the point where, you know, I could sort of demonstrate that the, the universe never actually manifested. You know, nothing ever existed, nothing ever happened, you know. And, uh, you know, and in one sense that was true, but, I, you know, I was sort of, it was lopsided the way I was presenting it. Um, and... Uh, you know, and I, and I was also showing up in my life as lopsided in terms of the way I was behaving. Uh, so I, I was just curious, you know, because I've actually felt some. I want to interview all these people, Jeff Foster and various other people, but I've actually felt a little bit of trepidation because I've thought, you know, how am I actually going to deal with this? If if they really are locked into a fundamentalist um, perspective, uh, am I really going to be able to? Um, make any headway in an interview, talk them out of it, or at least, you know, somehow find a common ground where we can have a conversation. And uh, so it's it's been a great um, breath of fresh air to talk to you. I mean, I had no idea exactly what I was going to <laughs> encounter, uh, but this has been fabulous. Um, and I, I got in touch with this other guy who uh, I won't name his name, I suppose, but he's in charge of one of the websites where they play a lot of interviews with um, Neo Advaita people. And, boy, just a few emails, and we were stuck. I mean, he was just saying, there are no levels of awareness. You know, all all the gurus and teachers and whatnot are just fooling people. And I thought, no, I'll have to wait on this. Yeah, I mean, because I've, ha- I've had uh, those conversations, and what I say is, you know, like you say, in, in one sense, that's actually totally true. In one yeah. sense, it is true. And, 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 and you sort of just agree with him, that's true. And then, but, 
then, but then on the what? other, yeah, <laughs> and, and then you know the problem is is not the view, it's it's the stuckness of the view. Yeah, and it's funny actually because I was listening to one of those interviews, and one of the other people who were hel who helped produce it was saying, you know, but everything is so ordinary. Is this it? I mean, is this all there is to it? And there's, there's this sort of wistful tone in her voice, like. Uh, have I really reached the ultimate realization, or, or could there possibly be something more? And I, I kept thinking, yes, you know, th there is more, but it's, it doesn't mean you have to sort of uh, sacrifice your realization of, of you know, the, the significance of now and non-seeking and all that business. But there's, if, if you think this is all there is to the, po the possibility of life in terms of this you know, spiritual development, um, you you got some pleasant surprises awaiting you at some point. Yeah, one way or the other, it's you're gonna you're gonna wake up from that one way or the other. I mean, you could probably go to your grave with sort of a like so like an absolutistic view. But if you just, I had there was a girl on Facebook the other day that says, if you think that you're enlightened, just go there. There are plenty of people who will let you know that you're not. Just yeah. just go die go dialogue with them. Well, as and, Ram Dass put it, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. Right, right. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> That'll dig up some old impressions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, as, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking is that uh, sometimes it's just like a psychological thing because I think a lot of us have been seekers for such a long time that if we actually kind of experience a sense of like an absolute ground or, or whatever we want to call it, that it, it, it's really enticing just to kind of hang on to that because the idea of having to get back involved with seeking in any form is just really scary. Yeah, it's like, God, I've, you know, relief, you know, I, I found a refuge, let's, let's leave it at that. Yeah, and, and let's dismiss anything that would come threaten that in any way, too, so. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I just was brought a cup of tea. Well, that's nice, I wish I had some. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to get married. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, that, that, that was actually, <coughs> excuse me, that was a good point, and I don't want to, um, we, we probably won't go on too much longer, but um, I, I was a little distracted by the tea. Could you just reiterate that? Because I, I, I realize it's important, I want to dwell on it a bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just saying that when you, when you look at it, there are often personal psychological reasons why people hang out in certain viewpoints. In other words, um, Security, like you were saying yeah, earlier, yeah, you know, like a sense yeah. of desire for an absolute to yeah. hang on to, you know, yeah, some, some certainty. And not only that, but I think there's also, I mean, you and I probably both had at one point in our life lots of seeking energy, you know, which is not really very pleasant, actually. Yeah. Because there's always like this sense of something's missing. But if you find this place where it feels like everything is, that outside of thought there's just no problem, you, you can see how it would be tempting psychologically to sort of hang on to that because of the fear of, of what if what if I let thought what if I start to entertain some stories what might happen here yeah I yeah. might, might go back into that old seeking. might sink back into my old uh, yeah yeah you know this even can have an impact on the if you med if a person meditates this this can have a major impact on the the way they do it or the way that they're, they're experiencing meditation because if you sit down in meditation with an attitude of I've got to get somewhere you know I've got to stop my mind I've got to kind of reach a, a nirvana or something there's going to be a, a whole manipulation 
It's, it's like when you were saying, when you were suppressing certain things, they only got stronger. So there's, it's going to be unnatural, there's going to be control and so on. But if you sit down and meditate with a complete sort of uh, acceptance of whatever is happening now and uh, no, no tendency to coerce your, your mind one way or the other, uh, you know, it's a, it's a much more beautiful experience. Yeah, and, yeah. and of course, this applies to life as well as to meditation. You know, meditation is just a more sort of focused period of, of doing the same thing that we really do 24 hours a day. Um, you know, if you're trying to, well, as Byron Katie is always so good at saying, you know, if you're trying to argue with reality, change, change what is, uh, then you're always going to lose. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you can somehow just have this complete acceptance, which is in no way incompatible with initiative or ambition or, or changing the world, but complete acceptance of what is at the same time, life is going to flow much more smoothly. That's right. No, I think that's. I think that's right. It's almost like the mind says, "Well, no, come on. You've got two different things going on," and it might say, "Well, those are both ideas," and so therefore they're, they're, you know. But you know, that's again a little bit too simplistic, and and I don't think. Uh, the thing also that came to mind is that one little technique that I started using with people who were in sort of an absolutistic uh, place was like the guy who emailed you and said. Um, you know that there are no teachers, there are no levels. Um, is it if if that person it all, all becomes open to shadow work? Mm. It usually almost never is, okay? Because at that point they believe they've transcended all, the, the whole. So they're thing. not open to it. You mean? Not open to it at the beginning, but if there's a if there's an opening, I'll start doing shadow work and I'll say, look at all of these others that you're actually shadow boxing. Yeah. But there there are all these people out there that are these pesky gurus and teachers and people. And look what you're, you're, you're buying into a separation. You're, you're really buying into a separation in the name of non-duality. Mm. So let's re-own that voice. So the, the voice of the one that you like that feels comfortable is no self. That's the one that feels comfortable to you. Mm. I said, well, just if, if, you're, if you're that free, entertain your story. How would that destroy this freedom? How could it ever destroy this freedom? Yeah. And at that point, you know, they, you know, if they're open, they might say, "Yeah, okay, so I'm a person, and my name is Joe, and 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 I have this story." And, and they start to realize, you know, that actually doesn't really destroy the underlying freedom. It doesn't yeah. actually do that. But very few do I find people who are open at that place to go there. Because, That's interesting. Yeah. That's sort of part of Byron Katie's work. Is you know, where would you be without that thought? You know. I mean, what's it going to do to you if if this is not true? You know, have you are you familiar with? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good sense. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Great. Well, I have a feeling you and I could go on all day, but we probably shouldn't. Um, yeah, we've been going on for almost two hours. Is is there anything that um, you'd like to say that maybe you have I haven't we haven't managed to bring up or you know anything you'd like to announce or anything? I don't know. Um, you know, only that if, just tell people if you, if you come and you talk to me, the thing about it is, is that, um, I guess to say is that the, uh, the best thing I'm trying to do these days is to really listen to where people are. You know, that's the, really the thing, because I think we've really hit on that in so many angles here. And I think that that's the, that's the value of it, is sort of not treating this stuff as sort of a one-size-fits-all way of talking about it. and. Mm -hmm. I think that in some ways you probably would agree that uh, I've, I've written recently is that I might say something to somebody and then say something else to somebody that sounds like two completely contradictory things. And I think that 
that's why just more and more it becomes about sort of a tailored dialogue to somebody, just an individual dialogue to somebody. So, and so I would say that if you come to me, kind of like I said, kind of in some ways, don't try to make sense of what we've said because you'll find this out in your own experience. Everything that Rick and I have talked about is going to be your experience. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to kind of come to our meeting saying, okay, Scott, now let me see if I get this concept right. There's this something called a middle way. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and then I say, well, hold on. You know, we might start somewhere else. You know, we might start somewhere else and get to that later at some other point. You know? Yeah. Different strokes for different folks, as Sly and the Family Stone sang. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, there's so many fascinating things, uh, uh, interesting stories we could get into and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, it's really enjoyable to do this, and, uh, but we should probably leave it for another day so we don't... Um, yeah, bore people to death. Or... Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, most people are, don't mind the fact that it's long. I, I, I was speaking to a guy the other day, and he said, oh, I just listened to it in 20-minute chunks. And I said, yeah, that'll work. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 that works. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, well, thanks, Rick, for having me. It's been yeah. Enjoyable. We'll do it again sometime. Um, so far, I've got a big, long list, and I haven't repeated anybody uh but uh well, sooner or later i'd like to come back and and talk to people again you know whom, whom i've already spoken with and see how it's going yeah. I, j- I just do one of these a week i'm not like uh richard miller who seems to be a full-time profession yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so let me just conclude by uh saying that uh you've been listening to or watching uh buddha at the gas pump which is a uh, weekly show in which um we have a conversation with someone who has had a spiritual awakening, uh, loosely defined, uh, all kinds of possibilities there. And um, there's a number of ways of listening to or watching this. Um, it's on Facebook. I'll be, I'll be uploading the videos of this and then tagging you in them so they show up under the videos on your Facebook page. It's on YouTube. Uh, and there's a website, batgap.com, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. That's the place to start, really, because you can see the whole list of interviews there and links to the Facebook and the YouTube and so on, and also to the podcast. There's a podcast, so if you like to listen to things in your car or while you're jogging or something, you can <clears throat> put it on your iPod. Um, so go there, and uh, next week I'll be speaking with someone named Kranti Ananda, I think her name is, who had an awakening in a Japanese prison. and. Uh, she seems to have a very fascinating story and has a great deal of uh, settled awareness from the interview I saw. The interviewer was all over the place, interrupting her and everything. She just kind of sat there like a rock. <laughs> so I've been speaking with Scott Killaby, and if you go to batgap.com, you will see links to Scott's various websites. And uh, Scott, I really have enjoyed this talk, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Rick. You've been great, great as a host.